Good to see everybody back again this evening. Uh, glad to see a few more visiting with us tonight that maybe haven't been here through the rest of the week. It's uh, in some ways kind of hard to believe that we're already to the last night of this VBS. Uh, in some ways, maybe you felt like it's dragged on. I, I thought it was kind of interesting that uh, we saved the last night to talk about the martyrs because you might feel a little bit like a martyr when you've reached the end of the week and, and all the suffering that you've gone through with the lessons and all the material that we've presented. I, I hope you don't really feel that way, but uh, I, I know uh, we've had a lot of material to cover. I appreciate so much your attention, uh, the kind words that you've already given to me, uh, Edwin's uh, words of encouragement as well. And I hope that you do feel that it's beneficial. Uh, I am planning to stick around for a few minutes after uh, services tonight to visit a little bit longer if, you, if you'd like to. Uh, I am going to be a little bit anxious to get back home. I got a phone call about, oh, 10 minutes after 6 uh, that my wife and my children have made it back home from West Virginia. Uh, my wife had been there for a week visiting with her folks. Our kids had actually been there for two weeks, and that's a long time to be away from a five-year-old and a three-year-old. So I'm going to be a little bit anxious to get back up to Bowling Green, but I have been glad to be here with you this week, and, and I hope that what we've talked about uh, has been beneficial. Uh, as Edwin said, tonight as we're talking about evidences, we're going to take a little bit different approach. Uh, throughout the week, we've conducted a series of investigations into the authenticity and reliability of the Bible. Can we trust the Bible and show you the evidence for why we can? Based on the copies that we have, the evidence to support its inspiration, the accuracy of the events recorded within its pages. And tonight we're going to take another look at some of those individuals whose lives are described in the pages of the Bible, and specifically some of them that recorded this information for us. The sacrifices that they made, the suffering that they went through, and in some areas what that has to do to relate to our faith and the evidence for the Scriptures. Because the Bible really only presents us with two alternatives. Either the Bible is the inspired Word of God, the verbal, plenary, inspired Word of God that comes from God, that is accurate in every respect, that God breathed as we've studied this week, or it's the most ingeniously crafted fabrication that's ever been created. Either it's God's Word, or it's the biggest lie that's ever been produced that the apostles and the prophets and those who wrote it or whoever came up with this just fabricated and put it all together to try to deceive us and mislead us in some way. And the writers of the Bible really leave room for no other alternative. It's not the type of thing where we can look at the Bible and say, well, maybe the apostles believed it, but they were just misled. Maybe they believed it on some level and they recorded for us what they thought really happened, but you know, you know, they just made some mistakes because they claimed to have been led by God. They gave us too many details. They claimed to have seen and heard and touched these things. And so that's not really a possibility. Paul tells us that the apostles are either true or they're false. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14 and 15, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we testified against God that he raised Christ when he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. And in the discussion of the resurrection, Paul says, I'll tell you what, if we're wrong on this, if it didn't take place, of course your faith doesn't mean anything. What we preach doesn't mean anything. In fact, we're false witnesses against God because we've clearly and abundantly testified. 
that God did what He did. We're either liars or we're telling the truth. And if the New Testament is a carefully orchestrated lie, then the apostles actually went against everything that they claimed Jesus taught, that they themselves taught as a moral standard, which is really unthinkable, that a book which commands time and time again that we must put away all deceit and speak only the truth, one of the things that's condemned more than anything else in the pages of the Scripture is lying. Lying comes from the devil, the father of lies. All liars will find their place in the torment and hell forever and ever, in that fire that will never be quenched, that in that book that says these things, that it would be falsely composed by liars. It's unimaginable that the book with the world's highest standard of morals and loftiest goals was composed by liars and frauds and deceivers. If the Bible's a lie, then the apostles just were the biggest hypocrites you could ever imagine. If the Bible is a lie, then the apostles suffered and the authors of the Bible suffered extreme hardship for what they knew was a lie. Now, there are people who will lie if they think they can get something out of it. They'll tell lies for money or for power or to avoid punishment in some way or to kind of tilt things in their favor. The apostles got nothing but trouble out of their message. As far as this world goes, they didn't really get power. They didn't get money. They didn't get riches or glory or anything else that man would pursue. They got persecutions. They lost what they had. And in fact, the writers of the New Testament were all martyred for the message that they delivered. James was stoned to death. Paul, according to tradition, was beheaded. Peter, according to tradition, was crucified upside down. Only John. The Apostle John lived to a natural death, lived to be an old man and finally died of natural causes, not that he went without suffering. He was exiled to the island of Patmos. He was basically imprisoned for his faith. But from the standpoint of evidences, that really gives us a serious question. Would they have died for a lie? Would they have suffered so much for a lie when they were given opportunity after opportunity, when they were being persecuted, to just simply deny Christ and it will all be lifted? And in fact, the Roman government did that during their persecution. Just deny Christ and we'll let you go. Confess Christ and we'll kill you. We'll feed you the lions, we'll burn you, we'll do whatever it is we're doing. And many individuals did deny their faith during those persecutions. These individuals did not. Would they have done that? For a lie. And we're going to take some time tonight to consider that on some levels, but we're not going to talk about all the martyrs. I've already given you too much information each night this week. We're trying to go through and look at all of that, and actually the Bible doesn't record a lot of information about many, many multiple martyrs. Instead, we're going to look at one. One significant individual about whom we're given more information in the pages of the New Testament than anyone else with the exception of our Lord. The Apostle Paul and the role that he plays in this. Because he is the most prolific of the Christian writers. He was the most influential of the teachers with the exception of the Lord. Again, if you're going to look at one individual who spread Christianity throughout the known world and had more to do with the establishment of the church than anyone else 
It was the Apostle Paul. Paul gave up so much because of the message that he delivered. And I want you to think tonight not only about the suffering he went through. I noticed on the little flyer again tonight it says we're going to talk about the, the gospel that's worth dying for, to die for. What he went through because of that message, but also as it relates to evidences and what we've been talking about, is it reasonable that anyone would go through what Paul went through as part of a carefully planned deception? To deceive people, to commit a crime, you have to have motive and you have to have opportunity. And the fact of the matter is, I think we've proven earlier in the week that they really didn't have opportunity to craft this book. It's not a man-made book. It couldn't be a man-made book. There's too many things in it that show its divine origin. But even if they had that opportunity, would they have had the motive? Would they have had the reason to do this? And when we think about Paul, even going back to the background of Paul, I think we understand what it cost him to follow Jesus. Where he came from and what he had. And what he was willing to turn his back on, because we're given significant information concerning even Paul's very early life. His ancestry and his youth, we're told where he's born. Paul said, I'm a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city, and I beg you, allow me to speak to the people in Acts chapter 21, verse 39. Born in Tarsus of Cilicia. Not an insignificant city. A major city. Cilicia was a Roman province in southeast Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And Tarsus was the capital. And when he says it wasn't an insignificant city, we know from excavations and history and archaeology and some of those things that we've talked about this week that Cilicia, or Tarsus, I'm sorry, had a fabulous school of literature, a school of philosophy, said to exceed even those schools of philosophy at Athens and Alexandria. It was a thoroughly Greek city. And what have had an impact on Paul? He was brought up in the best Greek culture, knowing those authors, knowing what they taught, knowing their philosophies. But he was also born of Jewish ancestry. He claims to be an Israelite of the seed of Abraham. He claims in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 22, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. He reminds us that he was of the tribe of Benjamin in Romans chapter 11 and in verse 1. I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. He knew his background and his heritage. Even describing himself in Philippians 3 and verse 5, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. And as to the law of Pharisee. That he had this Jewish background that was an influence on him. And, of course, we're told that he was a Roman as well. In Acts chapter 22, we won't turn over there. Verses 25 through 29, he confesses his citizenship when he was being abused after he was arrested. That he was a citizen of the Roman Empire. And so he had this Greek influence and Jewish influence and Roman influence. And because of that, he had a lot of privileges that most people didn't have. Paul had a lot of things going for him in life because of who he was and what he was born into and what he was exposed to. He had an education that was unlike many others. In Acts, the 22nd chapter, in verse 3, it says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city 
educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. Talked about being taught in Jerusalem. Being taught by Gamaliel, who was a Pharisee and a respected teacher. One of the greatest rabbis the Jews claimed they ever had. One of the smartest men at teaching the law and the way of the Pharisees to those who wanted to hold it. He pointed out he was the son of a Pharisee in Acts 23 and verse 6. That he became a member of the strictest party within the Jewish religion. That he was not only a member of that religion and a member of that sect, he excelled at it. In Galatians, the first chapter, in verse 13 and 14, he talks about his former manner of life in Judaism, and you start to see how important this was to him when you see how many times he talks about it. How he used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral tradition. That he excelled at his Judaism. That he was advancing beyond many others. And it's been suggested by some that with his background and his education and his training and what he learned under Gamaliel, Paul was probably on the fast track to being one of the greatest Jewish leaders that they'd ever had. Being on the Sanhedrin, being a great rabbi, leading the Jewish people and having respect and being treated in such a way that he would have power and authority and probably some riches that would come with it. He was a man of conviction that we read about in these passages that we need to keep in mind when considering whether or not he would lie about God and the Messiah. You think about that background and what he had learned from the time of his youth, that he would fabricate all of these letters that we have, that he would say things about God that just weren't true. It's hard to imagine that would be the case. It's hard to imagine him making this up about the church and about the Lord. And especially when we understand that he was a persecutor of the church at first. In Acts chapter 7, verse 57-58, we're told that Saul or Paul was present at the death of the first Christian martyr. We're talking about the martyrs tonight. We could go back and talk about Stephen. That he consented to the death of Stephen. Acts chapter 8, verse 1 talks about that. Acts 22, verse 20. He was there. They laid their coats. The men who stoned Stephen to death, they laid him at the feet of a man named Saul who became Paul, the apostle. He turned his attention after the stoning of Stephen to making havoc of the church as he described it. Entering homes, he was dragging men and women to prison. He entered synagogues, imprisoning and beating those who believed in Jesus. He believed it necessary to do things contrary to the name of Jesus recorded for us in his trials in the book of Acts. He would later confess concerning these things, that he persecuted the church beyond measure in an attempt to destroy it. And for such reasons, he considered himself the least of the apostles. Not worthy to be an apostle, 1 Corinthians 15, 9. I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He reflected on what he had done. And he realized how much he had worked against the church. Because of that, he's an unlikely candidate to be an apostle. He's an unlikely candidate to be a liar about what God said. And yet, he's the one that God considered worthy to reveal so much about 
Jesus Christ and about His church. And God considered Him worthy to take the gospel to all of those who are in the world, to the Jews and to the Gentiles, to be a special apostle in a way to the Gentiles, to spread the word God chose Him for a reason. And I think much of that had to do with this background and what it would cost Him. That things began to change for Paul on the road to Damascus. While he was traveling to that city in order to bring back any Christians to Jerusalem. He was going there to arrest the Christians and bring them back and persecute them and continue doing what he had been doing. But he saw a vision. He claims that the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him, preceded by a bright light shining from heaven and accompanied by a voice speaking to him. That's described in Acts, the ninth chapter. Jesus identified himself, and he acknowledged Paul's actions against him. In Acts chapter 9, verse 4 and 5, he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. He told Paul what he needed to do. That he was to go into the city and await further instructions and he submitted to Christ. He obeyed the commandment of his Lord. While in the city of Damascus, Paul had to wait for three days, during which time he was blind. He didn't eat or drink. He just prayed. Spent his time in prayer according to Acts chapter 9, verse 11. And at the end of these days, Ananias came to visit Paul. Only after the Lord compelled him to come, he laid hands on Paul. He restored Paul's sight. He told Paul what he would do. He admonished Paul to be baptized. And once Paul was, he immediately began preaching. He immediately began sharing with others what he had learned about the Lord. He changed his message and changed his approach. He changed his life. He later would look back on his conversion with an attitude of amazement. And gratitude. He looked back and say, I, well, I'm not worthy to do this. I'm not worthy to be an apostle. I'm amazed that God is using me in this way. He references it in his letters to the church at Corinth, the churches of Galatia, the church at Rome, the church in Ephesus and Philippi, his correspondence with Timothy. Every one of those letters contains something about his conversion that account and what happened and how God considered him worthy and God decided to use him in this way, he was thankful that God used him in this way. But it's his suffering that we're focusing on tonight. And that's something that Paul was promised from the beginning. It was part of the message that Ananias brought to him in Acts chapter 9, verse 15 and 16. I don't know if Ananias told him that right then. But look at what God told Ananias. In Acts chapter 9, verse 15 and 16, when Ananias is kind of resisting, he says back in verse 13, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. Here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. And Ananias is kind of resisting when God said, go to Paul and go talk to him. He says, I, I don't really want to go talk to Saul or Paul. He's done nothing but cause trouble for the Christians. In verse 15, the Lord tells Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine 
to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. And that sounds great because that's how we usually think about Paul. And then in verse 16, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. That's an amazing statement that's made from the very beginning. Go, for he is my chosen instrument. My chosen instrument for what? My chosen instrument to bear my name to the Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel to be a great proclaimer of the gospel and my chosen instrument to show how much someone can suffer for me. Would you like that calling? It's like God singled out Paul and said, I have picked him specifically for the cause of having someone suffer as much as possible. I'm going to show you how bad it can be. You're the example that's going to be used where anybody will be able to look back on their own life and say, yeah, I have it tough, but not as bad as that guy. He had it worse than anybody else. That's kind of what God is saying about Paul. That Paul would lose everything that he held dear. Everything that once meant something to him. And yet he seemed to gladly accept what came to him. He seemed to accept the persecution. And I know it's what we would expect from one who was so vocal in standing up to the Lord. Part of the Beatitudes that Jesus taught from the very beginning, blessed are you and then persecute you. When they hurl insults at you, when they do all kinds of evil things against you because of me. You need to rejoice in that. That's what they've always done to God's people. That's how they treat the prophets. That's how they'll treat you. If they treat me like that, they'll treat you like that. I think in some way, that's what Paul was conveying in Second Corinthians, the fourth chapter. Verses 7 through 12, when we look over there, and he describes what it means to be a Christian. He says, we have this treasure in earth and vessels. So the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. So the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. When he describes what he's going through, he talks about constantly being crushed or or pressured upon, but not defeated. He talks about the pressure that came upon him from all sides as he was persecuted and hated by the Jews. He was persecuted and he was hated by the Gentiles. And when the Jews or the Gentiles lashed out at Paul, they lashed out with all that they had. They treated him with every bit of contempt and anger that they could muster. The description that he gives in 2 Corinthians the 11th chapter, I think is glossed over too often. That we read through it from time to time, but we don't really think about what he says. He says, to my shame, beginning in verse 21 of 2 Corinthians 11, I must say we've been weak by comparison, but whenever respect anyone else is bold, I speak in foolishness, I'm just as bold myself. Are they Hebrews, so am I. Are they Israelites, so am I. Are they descendants of Abraham, so am I. Are they servants of Christ, I speak as if insane, I more so. And then when you start reading what he describes here, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, 
often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there's a daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. And he describes his life in great detail. And I think we need to let that sink in. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Can you imagine any of that happening? One time to you. One time being 39 lashes received. Or one time being beaten with rods because of your faith. Or one time being stoned. Or one time going for an extended period of time without food. Without clothing. Because of your faith. And yet Paul rattles that off and we kind of let that all blend together. We think, yeah, it was kind of a rough life. Three times being shipwrecked. Spending a day and night in the deep before you were saved. He underwent all of those things. Yet that's not all he went through. He endured other physical sufferings. And not just those brought on by unbelievers. We expect the heathen to lash out at Paul. We expect those who don't believe in God to come and attack him. They have free will and they use their power against God. But what about the things that God seems to control? Those forces. You'd think if he's dealing with all of the Jews who want to kill him and the Gentiles who want to kill him, at least God would provide for him food and clothing, wouldn't he? At least God would make sure the ship reached the shore okay. If Paul had to deal with the same problems of life that others had to deal with, he had to deal with not having enough to eat or not having clothing to wear. He had to suffer through hardships when things didn't go his way, through shipwrecks three times. But these weren't just by chance. Many of these were intentional. He didn't just go through, you know, bad things happen to people. Sometimes the tire goes flat or you get in a car wreck or you lose a job because of downsizing. Many of these things were intentional because of who he was. Like this thorn in the flesh that he describes for us. In 2 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, he turned over there in verse 7. He says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. For this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And He has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 
He describes a thorn in the flesh there that we spend a lot of time in Bible study, sometimes in sermons, trying to speculate as to what it was. Some physical malady, bad eyesight, something else. You know, you'll find something about Paul that was wrong with him and say, well, that, that's a thorn in the flesh. And there's sometimes some clues that we try to put together, figure out what that was. But he says it's something that was given to him. Given to him because of the revelation. Given to him because of the role that he was playing as an apostle. Keep him from exalting himself, but he saw it as something that hindered him. He asked that it might be removed. I think he felt in some ways he could be a more powerful apostle if it wasn't there. And so he kept going back to God and saying, please take this away. And I said, no, you don't need me to. My power is perfected in weakness. This messenger of Satan to buffet you, and remind you that the power doesn't come from you, it comes from me. I heard a very interesting lecture one time on interpreting this thorn in the flesh as just being the way that Paul was disrespected, disrespected and, and never really received anywhere for who he truly was. And this man had a tremendous education. This man had tremendous revelation given to him. This man was an important, powerful individual, and everywhere he went, no one listened to him. Everybody despised him. He never got respected. I think there's some things in the text that might suggest that's part of the problem here. I'm content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. Recognizing that he didn't have this power that maybe he deserved to have. But because he followed Christ, he accepted those things. He underwent severe emotional suffering. Emotional suffering because of persecution and severe hatred leveled at him. Thankfully, most of us have not had to deal with a lot of hate directed at us. But if you ever have, that's hard to handle. If you ever had anyone really look at you and really, you can tell there's fire burning in their eyes and they say, I hate you. I despise everything about you. I'd kill you the second I get a chance. Paul had that toward himself. Paul had those he was at one time closest to attack him and question his loyalty to God. He had been accused of not trying to serve God. He had been a Hebrew of Hebrews. He had been an up-and-coming leader among the Pharisees. And they turned on him. They despised him. They made plots to kill him. They said he was trying to disobey God and leading people away from God. He had his daily concern for all the churches. His life was given to the spreading of the gospel, the establishment of these churches. He had a personal interest in each one. And it caused him pain when there were problems in the congregations, which is inevitable that there'd be those problems. We can imagine what it was like for Paul and his sufferings. But even beyond those things, we need to recognize that Paul lived a life of sacrifice. He gave up so many things, beginning with his religious or spiritual service. And I don't know how often we think about that, but Paul really served two lives. The first life was devoted to God in Pharisaic Judaism. The second life was devoted to God in Christ. He's unusual. Because in both aspects of his life, he was doing what he thought God wanted him to do. But he had to make such a major shift in his life. 
He'd spent so much of his time preparing himself in Judaism. He had devoted himself to that cause, which wasn't a bad cause at the time he devoted himself to it. He'd gone through all of that schooling and all of that preparation and understanding the law of Moses and understanding the traditions of his ancestors. But he had to give it all up to follow Christ. And he laid that aside. In Philippians, the third chapter, beginning of verse 4, he says, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as the law of Pharisee, as the zeal of persecutor of the church, as of the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, that I may gain Christ. Everything I have, I've counted as loss, and I've suffered the loss of it. I've suffered the loss of my reputation, of my standing, of my background, of my original faith. He suffered that and gave it up to follow Christ. He changed his religious convictions to follow Christ. He gave up control over his life to follow Christ. When Paul was advancing in Judaism, it was according to his plan. He was doing those things because he thought they would be pleasing to God, but yet it was still he that was in control of it. He was the one that prepared himself in Judaism. He was the one that decided where he would go and what he would do. He decided to study under Gamaliel, to become a Pharisee, to pursue and persecute the church. He was in charge. In Christ, that was no longer the case. We occasionally read in the pages of the New Testament some of what he wanted to do tasks that he wanted to perform. He desired to go to certain places and take the gospel certain places. But those plans were always in God's hands. Often Paul was not even allowed to do what he wanted to do and go where he wanted to go when he was taking the gospel somewhere. He wants to go here and preach it. And Holy Spirit says, nope, not going there. Well, I'll go over here. Holy Spirit says, no, okay, where am I going? How long am I going to be there? Who am I talking to? He was led by God in all of those things. What to do, when, where, how, even applying to his death. In Philippians as well, the first chapter, beginning in verse 21, he says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. He talks about his life. And in a sense, he says, I want to die. And I think we can understand why he would want that. Not that life was so horrible, but he was ready to go and be with Christ. And life was pretty rough as well. Things that he went through and the things that he suffered and sacrificed. He said, you know, when I look at it, I'd rather die and I'd rather go and be with Christ and that would be better for me. But it's more necessary for you that I stay a little bit longer. 
And so I know what God's going to do. God's going to have me stay for you. God's going to have me do this work that He wants me to do. Paul knew that God would use him as God saw fit. And he was willing to offer that service to God. Does that sound like one who would deceive us? Does that sound like one who would make up such an account and lie about all of these things? I mean, just in Paul's life, that life of service and sacrifice, there's so many things that we can learn. So many things that apply to us. It, it does take on special meaning. When Paul wrote in Galatians 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I've sang that before. I've read that before. I've studied that before. I hope to some degree I've lived that before. And that I'm living it now. But Paul, in a much fuller sense, crucified himself and lost everything that he once held dear because of his belief. The suffering that he endured in life, the sacrifice that he gave up in death, not even getting to die the way he wanted to, but having his head taken off as a testimony, as a witness to Jesus Christ. They did that because they believed in their message. The highest moral value the highest calling that you could imagine, a book that stands out in comparison to anything else that's ever been produced because they looked forward to the reward. They saw something beyond this life. That's what they put their confidence in. That's what they call us to follow and to do as well. 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter and verse 19 Paul makes a statement that's profound once again when we consider it in light of his life and his suffering and his goals. And he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. If there isn't a life after this one, then why are we doing what we're doing? He didn't gain anything by this. Not in this life. He didn't gain notoriety and fame. We, we put him on a pedestal, and rightfully so. Centuries later, understanding what he did as a, an apostle of the Lord and what he revealed to us about God. But in his day and time, he wasn't received that way. He was beaten and mocked, and they attempted to kill him. And he was mistreated, and his health wasn't that great. and I, Everything went wrong. He said, this is not the life if it's about this life. But it's about something beyond this life. It's about something more and his confidence and his faith and his trust is placed in that. And he set a supreme example for us to follow as he followed Christ. As he lived a life that the disciples should live. We see him as an outstanding example and yet I don't think he saw himself in that way. He saw himself as just a Christian just doing what any Christian should do. Giving their life to the Lord and going where He wants them to go and doing what He wants them to do. And we may not have that direct guidance that He had through the Holy Spirit, but we have the same message and the same calling. And we need to realize 
But that's the cost of discipleship. Jesus said you need to count the cost. Consider whether you're willing to do it. If you're willing to take up your cross and follow me and to learn from those who went before. And that's the real point of the Bible. We've studied this week those different aspects of evidences, why we trust the Bible, why we can believe the Bible. There's abundant evidence to say that it's true and it's right. And we can put our faith in it. The question that remains is, will we? Will we do what it says? Will we learn from its pages? And will we live those scriptures in our life? And I hope that's what you commit yourself to every day, as long as you have it, to do what the Lord wants us to do with the life that He's given to us. appreciate being here this week. I appreciate your attention tonight and the time that we spent together.